My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Beth Doliaga. When it comes to mining and other forms of resource extraction, Canada is something of a superpower. While our current government goes to great lengths to emphasize, some would say exaggerate, the economic importance of such activities, residents of many frontline communities point out the accompanying horrendous damage to the environment and health, and, often, violations of the rights of Indigenous peoples, not only here in Canada, but by companies based here that are at work in every corner of the earth. Dolyaga is an activist with the Vancouver-based Mining Justice Alliance, a coalition of groups and individuals committed to working against the many injustices fostered by the global mining industry. They prioritize the perspectives and social justice concerns of frontline affected communities, particularly indigenous communities, seeing the connections between abuses in the global south and institutions, laws, and practices found in Canada, and working to challenge the devastating impacts that are so often produced by the mining industry. We spoke about the group, the broader political context, and the struggle against what they describe as, quote, endemic injustice within Canada's state-sponsored mining industry. I spoke with Daliaga by Skype to phone from Vancouver. I'm Beth Daliaga. I'm a founding member of the Canada-Philippine Solidarity for Human Rights and Migrante BC. CPS, or the Canada-Philippine Solidarity for Human Rights, sits as a member of the Mining Justice Alliance which is a coalition of activists, civil society organizations, students, and community members, which was formed initially to mobilize around Gold Corp in its annual general meeting in 2011. The Mining Justice Alliance expanded you know, their response to concerns about the injustices, endemic injustices within Canada's state-supported mining industry. And in that case, we, from the global community coming from the Philippines, like myself as an immigrant and now a citizen of Canada, give also our voice and also bring the voices of particularly the indigenous peoples of the Philippines who are affected of foreign large-scale mining, like the Canadian corporations. When we say it's a globalized mining industry, um, like I come from the Philippines and migrated to Canada almost two decades ago. I see that I'm a Filipina by birth, a Canadian by naturalization, but the nationalities I bear represent the struggle and diaspora of my people. So in this context, I see that we represent all of us a world that should be good one for everyone. But globalization, of course, and colonialism, wars of aggression, and occupation have changed the course of our lives. And that is where I'm coming from. The globalized mining and the destructive character of its operation, we know spells misery and suffering to vulnerable groups, particularly the indigenous people, because 
It happens, not in the city, but in the remotest areas of places. Most of these are actually their ancestral domain. And in effect, globalization and its lopsided trade liberalization undeniably result to unprecedented adverse consequences at both global and local level, as characterized by the ever-growing inequity in wealth distribution and in parts of the global south, the ever-worsening poverty. So we see that development aggression, such as mining, has threatened the indigenous way of life because of the intrusion in their ancestral domain. We also see that they live in farms, their homes, their forests, and sacred places of worship are affected, and the increased migration, and this is where you know the displacements of people from other communities, they seek work which affect negatively uh, local people. So we see this and connect this also to what we call now the climate change. You know, the deforestation and flattening of mountains for mining make everyone susceptible to other effects of environmental destruction like landslides and disasters affecting upland as well as the lowland communities. So we are all interconnected. It's not just here in Canada that we voice and struggle for a better environment solution. And of course, mining is this global culprit of this. As I mentioned, a coalition of activists, civil society organizations, students and community members, like me coming from the Canada Philippine Solidarity Group, and then we have, of course, the members from Latin American organizations that also represent their community in there. Bringing, of course, the concerns of their people from the place they are from. And this is still, most of them, if not all, perhaps see that they are Canadians, but they are still linked and they still call wherever they're from their homeland. It's that link that connects us as a global community. If we do this kind of work, we don't just separate ourselves. It's also going there in solidarity for a fact-finding mission, for example, and bringing it back to here. It's not just petition signing, but you work and talk and engage to the affected people. Coalition initially formed to mobilize around the Gold Corps 2011 annual general meeting. From there, it started to organize in solidarity with communities in Canada, First Nations, the Americas, and around the globe in Asia-Pacific regions. We know that while the extractive corporations claim to bring economic and social development to local and indigenous communities, we also see that the members of affected communities report conflict and, as I mentioned, you know, the environmental destruction and also, uh, of course, their food supply, their water, and just itself a violation of their indigenous rights and human rights abuses. So our organizing work prioritizes the perspectives and social justice concerns expressed by those who are directly affected, particularly, of course, the indigenous peoples in the global south, where Canadian corporations have large-scale mining. 
the arena of struggle for anti-mining campaign should not totally rely on the strength of local victories, since the issue and the new hierarchy of power have assumed global character. The campaign necessarily has to assume global engagement, and large-scale mining is not an isolated economic activity. It is always within the ambit of a larger network of interconnections, and the dangers or risks that it poses are common to all other sites in other parts of the world. So given this situation, any effort to create global solidarity and cooperation, particularly among the aggregate of non-government organizations and institutions is a huge and very welcome initiative for all of us. Tell me a bit more about the structure of the Mining Justice Alliance, how you make decisions about priorities and actions and that kind of thing. We have meetings, and as I mentioned, there are different grassroots organizations represented and seats at the working group and they bring reports or there are campaigns or urgent actions coming from, for example, from Guatemala or Colombia, Mexico, Philippines, you know, and we share. We try to give voice to the urgent actions. For example, there would be killings whenever there are mining operations happening in a place. There is militarization And so these are a priority for us to take into action. We write letters to the government that has the authority, the power to see to it that human rights abuses there should be investigated. We also, of course, give copies to our Canadian government, like our MPs, and take on actions like if you belong to certain area where a member of the parliament has this portfolio. We go and talk to them and give them this facts coming from the people themselves. That's why it's very important to also invite people. Sometimes we put up a call to action for solidarity for people to go and see for themselves for a fact-finding mission. In 2011, for example, I was part of the Beaconsfield Initiative to see the Canadian mining exploration in the northern part of the Philippines. This was sponsored and hosted by the United Church of Canada. And through this, what we gathered was also shared at our group in the Mining Justice Alliance. But then what is more important there is the action that the General Council, which is the highest court of the United Church of Canada, received and took action of the reports. And through that, it sent out a resolution for lobbying in the parliament to stop the mining operations and also to see to it, the lobbying would also ask corporations to indemnify and to work to bring the people's livelihood back. The Canadian state supports these companies in very practical, material ways. As well, companies that have these terrible impacts on so many communities in the Global South as well as First Nations here have been very successful in insinuating themselves into the fabric of mainstream Canadian communities. For instance, the pension funds upon which many middle-class and working-class Canadians depend are invested in many of these companies, and not just private pensions, but the National Canada Pension Plan. 
As well, companies have taken advantage of cuts in government spending on public services by making donations in related areas that are not even close to adequate to make up the difference, but to provide a public relations opportunity to be seen as contributing to the community. Goldwashing, Daliaga calls it. Canada's government funds and ensures overseas extractive operations are tax dollars through domestic institutions, right? We have the multilateral development banks, the Canadian and BC Union pension funds, especially the CPP. In our statistics here says that the CPP have some $3.5 billion invested in mining corporations along with arms manufacturers and the tobacco industry. So I'd like to put this in the context. With gold hitting record prices, you know, wealthy mining companies devote millions, a tiny fraction of their huge, immense profits to what they call gold washing, spinning a positive public image. When governments cut funding for social goods like healthcare, education, and arts, some public and nonprofit organizations feel they have no choice but to accept the tainted money. So how do we respond to that as Canadians? Of course, bring back the public services. In Vancouver alone, mining companies repeatedly accused of responsibility for water contamination and violent repression fund our hospital foundations, cancer centers, arts organizations, and children's charities. How do we see that again? So it's again giving the transnational companies like this mining corporations that gold washing to make a name, a good name for themselves because, again, our public health care and education are being privatized and now here comes the money coming from them and we take it as, as a, a manna from heaven that would actually is a, a blood-tainted money coming from the affected communities in the global south. So. Their names are plastered on the walls of our university campuses and tourist attractions. But stories, again, of devastation and mine-affected communities are rarely reported in our mainstream media. So we have to take that accountability again. Gold Corp has its own place and venue. You know, they fund this. It's an avenue for people to meet and to do their social activities. Recently, uh, we had this Marmato Film Festival, part of the Vancouver International Film Fest, where they held it at the Gold Corp Institute at uh, Woodsworth. So we thought, you know, why don't we reclaim that name? So we went to distribute flyers to the audience who, who will be seeing the film and told them the irony of what is this Gold Corp about. All of them know, but it's not just about knowing, but also about the action that has to be done. I understand from your website that another kind of action that the Mining Justice Alliance has taken is you've done toxic tours in Vancouver. Tell me a bit more about that. The toxic tour is actually, uh, it's, it's the irony again, the world's most livable city, Vancouver, we just located, we recognize on the unceded territories of the Kofelish people. The city government would say that we continue to work for the greenest city in the world. But Vancouver is also home to the world's largest conglomeration of mining exploration firms. So we invite people to, it's just like a hike in the city of Vancouver. 
And we stop in these huge corporate buildings where the um, office of a mining corporation, for example, in Guatemala and Mexico, in the Philippines, and we bring letters of concern addressed to the corporation and ask for actions. Through this, we gather people from different communities, including, of course, First Nations. We do that in August every summer. It's kind of a way of saying that this is Vancouver and bringing them to the other phase of Vancouver, which is where we say that, you know, this is a place where this company is accountable and responsible for the deaths of, say, the indigenous peoples of Guatemala and also the indigenous peoples here in Canada. It's kind of a revelation for people. When we walk in downtown area of Vancouver, we see beautiful skyscraper buildings there. But what are these buildings for and who are actually working and operating there? What, what's their business? When we send out letters for them to receive, they would even say, you know, uh, well, we work and, you know, we, we don't know it's happening there. We're just, you know, working here. I think people are not aware of really what's happening, but it's this way of bringing information to people and bringing their consciousness, that political consciousness, to do action. And so it's raising the awareness, you know, advocacy work, you work with friends, with your neighbors, with your unions and associations. When you speak to demand pension reforms, we see that as a huge, a big struggle. We also call for divestment, uh, withdrawing your own investments in harmful, extractive projects. So it's informing the public before demanding such, you know, would be, I think, a strategy that people would somehow understand. We see that it's very important for people to be informed. Of course, when you demand full public and ethical funding for local arts and culture, why is that? And so we have to see that public education, social services like healthcare is the government's job to provide this to its people. It's not the corporate industries that should be providing money for these services. So we come from that basic call, you know, information that, you know, we have to educate us, not just the public, but even us as advocates, you know. And these are all interconnected, we believe. It's not just about mining, but it's about globalization and the neoliberal agendas of our government should be seen as part of all this call to action and what we could do. Give me a sense of maybe a couple of the other concrete actions that the Mining Justice Alliance has taken in, say, the last year. We had solidarity actions. We had, for example, the Global Solidarity Action, which was held in downtown Vancouver, where we had a table, like um, a sanctuary sort of, where faces of people who have been killed, these are indigenous peoples, mostly indigenous peoples from Guatemala, from the Philippines, from Mexico and other parts of the world, and we put up their faces there. We have this huge mural. We did the mural painting, and we contributed our time and energy to do that mural. 
we have an artist who invited us to help in putting up uh, collars and strokes of brush there. That huge mural wasn't just used in Vancouver, but it was also brought in Guatemala in one of the silent protests at the gate of that mining corporations in Guatemala. So it's giving information to the public as well as it's a protest rally. And then recently, we also was asked to be at the Imperial Metals AGM. It's always the time for us to be able to come and be there to hand out leaflets. And it's also raising awareness to people. Has the Mining Justice Alliance been involved at all in responding to uh, the big uh, tailing pond spill at Mount Polly in, in northern BC? There was a First Nations event gathering that we supported. The Mining Justice Alliance, in our part, supported the fundraiser. They were fundraising for legal funds for people because they see that it is another way and form of struggle for the people to be there and camp out and to be vigilant of, you know, the operations coming in. And so they saw the huge possibility, of course, of arrests of the people. So uh, when they did a fundraiser, we supported that by coming and endorsing it to the public. I asked Daliaga about Bill C-584, a private member's bill that would have significantly increased the accountability in Canada of resource extraction companies that commit various kinds of abuses in other countries. She said that the bill was mainly the initiative of Kairos, a multi-denominational Christian faith-based social justice NGO, but that the Mining Justice Alliance certainly acted in support of it. This is about a debate on the extractive sector and sector ombudsman bill. So it's to create a new accountability mechanism for companies operating abroad. Kairos took this initiative. We also work with Kairos as partners. Kairos Canada took the initiative asking all members of the parliament to support the bill, but it unfortunately didn't pass. That passed in the first two readings, but when the vote came, just the numbers of not voting for that bill to pass was really not just a frustration, but a devastation for our people who we said, you know, Canada would do something for this to put back a, a, a just society there. It's unfortunate. It's a long shot, but we continue to struggle because we say that the struggle itself is already a victory. In the work that the Mining Justice Alliance does, tell me about both the importance and the challenges of building relationships with the frontline indigenous communities that are the ones that are most directly affected by mining. We have to work together as communities, whether it's regional, local, national, and international. It's a global arena of struggle when we say anti-mining campaign. So it would be difficult when we see that compartmentalized, when there is a struggle of the indigenous peoples of the north or in other parts of the globe. We are all interconnected. We want to see that more of the interconnections and being a part of the earth, of a global community. So the struggle would be, again, we have to connect and engage these people. 
when we plan for actions, for example, for conferences, it's not us who would be talking. We try to invite Indigenous peoples or representatives from a community that's being affected for them to speak and to share their stories. And through this information and then action, So the challenges would always be because all of us, of course, we all come from all walks of life as activists and we don't have funding. So we work as volunteers. It's a volunteer-driven organization. So we try to do fundraising. We try to also ask for funding from friends who could contribute and use this money towards other projects. So those are perhaps the resources. It's not much of a challenge, but it's more of sometimes the time. All of us are also working, and so we have to have a political will in doing and offering our time and our resources towards working in this kind of advocacy or in this movement. I would call it should be a global movement of passionate individuals who want a change, a better change for this world. What do you see coming up for the Mining Justice Alliance in the next six months or a year that that you're really excited about? We're planning for a toxic tour again. It would be a back-to-back toxic tour and a conference. The conference is holding us off because We would like to bring resource speakers coming from the affected communities, but we have to look into the budget first before we could really put that to reality or to have that materialized, right? We see that we can do it with the support of our community and also with the support of other people and institutions that also see that whatever the rationale of this conference and toxic tour, they would support that. We see that institutions like the church have been part of that partnership with us and also the unions, the the labor unions are also supportive in that endeavor. So we find that these institutions, you know, that also has that mandate as well as the principle of working as partners for a better community or for pushing a just, peaceful society is possible. It's not just, you know, a peaceful society, but we say that it should be with justice. It's always to be based on that justice. So we're hoping to have that conference and toxic tour again next year. You have been listening to my interview with Beth Doliaga of the Mining Justice Alliance. To learn more about their work, go to miningjusticealliance.wordpress.com. That's miningjusticealliance.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 